Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Lit Up. I'm so excited because I have Dolly Alderton on the show today. I have been such a fan of her work, mainly in the podcast space, because I'm an avid fan of the high-low that she does with one of her best friends, Pandora Sykes. But now she has um, her book out, which is called Everything I Know About Love. And it's been out in the UK and it was a crazy bestseller out in Australia, also a crazy bestseller, and it's uh, just launching in the US now. You can understand from the title, Everything I Know About Love, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because Dolly doesn't know a lot about love throughout these essays, but obviously comes to these incredible epiphanies. It's the book I wish I had in my early 20s, and it's the book I'd give to any young woman or man navigating romance. So I hope you love this conversation. I have Dolly here in Dumbo. Thank you for being here, Dolly. Thank you so much for having me. Do you know a piece of trivia about Dumbo? There's a a chapter in the book where I come to New York and behave in a particularly nutty way. And I go to a wedding where I get incredibly drunk and act like their sort of archetypal single bridesmaid at a wedding and it was round the corner in a warehouse in Dumbo so I feel very triggered being back here. (laughs) That's just what I had in mind you poor thing. I'm thinking that the Bikram yoga you did this morning might have calmed you down though. I love that you were (laughs) that you saw that yeah I did I did like 9am Bikram yoga and in Manhattan, and it just felt like one of those classic for me. As a girl who grew up watching every episode of Sex in the City like 300 times, it felt like a classic New York experience. And I have to say, the Bikram yoga here is very different to the Bikram yoga in London. How, how so? Generally in New York, um, and I don't know if you find this as well as um, a kind of outsider in the city, I find it so interesting that exercise for women here is 
just so a given as a part of their daily routine. Whereas in London, if you're someone who goes to a Bikram yoga class twice a week, that means you're like a supreme athlete. You know what I mean? Like lots of English girls just, you know, walk to work and eat carbs at every meal and have a cigarette on their lunch break. And I think here exercise is, is just so much a part of the way of life. Well, it also connects to what you were saying, and it's in the book as well, about how much we work on our bodies and why and how, particularly when you had that awful breakup, that was when all this weight just dropped off you. Mm. And it's that moment where for so many women, and we've all probably been there, that when we're in the most distress we're getting the most affirmation from the world about how good we look. Yeah, I was I was I was thinking about this recently because I saw a friend of mine and she's lost a huge amount of weight. She's not a friend I should make clear. She's an acquaintance. I'm not slagging off my friend on a podcast. And uh, I don't know if it's been through healthy means or not. It's it looks like it's it's very extreme the way she's done it. And I just watched her in an orbit of almighty power that was really frightening. And I think it's like, I don't know, once you've been a woman who's had troubles with eating and their body, it's almost like you have access to see an invisible ink on women's faces and bodies and habits when you that a lot of other people can't see. And I now feel like I'm so sensitive and can see in so many situations women who are right in the thick of those struggles. And I just saw her from the outside. It just it seemed like she was confident and she, um, you know, had worked hard for this body and she was really happy. And what I could see was much more worrying, which was what I definitely experienced, which was like a, a mania of suddenly feeling like I had access to a certain type of cachet that I didn't feel I ever had before. And people reacted to me completely differently. Um, and it was, it's so intoxicating. So, yeah, that's something that you become very sensitive to once you've been, once you've been through it. And now I'm, I'm incredibly sensitive when I'm around and, and talking to women who have lost a lot of weight. Sometimes I find it hard to be around women that have problems with eating, you know, mm. like have, who have all the rules and you can see mm. their neuroses are playing out because it reminds me of the me. Yeah. And then you think how, I don't know, there's always that tricky thing, how to communicate with someone who's obviously somewhere you're not anymore. Yeah. But yeah, it's just hard. I remove myself from those situations now. It's so interesting you should say that because I had it recently when I was with a group of people and that was so at the forefront of conversation. And for me, I'm a recovering addict with that stuff and it was like just being in a room of people using, I just had, I couldn't be around it. it. It was too, it aggravated too much trauma in me to be in an environment where absolute obsession about around um, diet and body and calories and um, exercise, it was just too damaging. But equally, I, I don't judge them at all. And I think as well, and, and this is where I think the body positivity 
um, movement that which I think is such a force for good and I wish had been around when I was younger and I might not have ever got into the messes that I did in my 20s with my body but this is where I think it becomes kind of complex as a feminist issue the body positivity movement because even though I find that kind of obsession over one's um, physical self um, and like a monomaniacal preoccupation with it as, as much as I find that worrying heartbreaking sad for me personally very distressing something I can't be around not only do I totally defend a woman's right to have that obsession I think it would be so diminishing and um, patronizing and disregarding of the fundamental truth of how fucking hard it is to be a woman in this world to to um, be angry about it or to to um, to see that as somehow an unfeminist act or somehow their obsession with thinness thinking that that means that it's a comment on my lack of thinness or do you see what I'm saying like I think that when all, all we're kind of told is that our physical appearance is the most important thing and it's evangelical it's like a religion in western culture to then for women to feel that tyranny every day first and foremost and then have a bunch of women tell them that they've failed as a feminist and that they are being oppressive towards others who don't want that for themselves it's a lot i think that's unfair do you see what i'm saying i just wish for all of us that we could harness all that energy and worry that we pour into those things at certain periods of our lives and shift it towards something else. Like that's, but I also wish that about men for myself. Had I been able to focus the obsession I had on relationships, men, romance, I know, to something else, like potentially jobs or a hobby, pretty much. Anything, You know, I'd have my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours Mm. in something, but instead, you know, I didn't and here we are and it's all good. But no, it's and but it's such a clever it's it's so clever, the cult of romance, how it's being constructed, because I still there. I know so few men who've lost their 10,000 hours to it. And that's the truth. And I, again, I don't think that's our fault at all. I think when you look at the love stories that we see in culture, in fiction, in films, um, you know, and also the fact that there is a biological imperative for women and a sense of fear around that often that is beyond our control or beyond even our cognizance. Um, There are so many women I know who I think, if only myself included, if only we could find our own power in those situations and seize upon it and claim back all that time that has been frittered with that anxiety or self-loathing or dysfunction. I just don't know any men who I feel that about. I, I don't, it doesn't seem like that's a huge problem for the men in my life. No, they do their thing and then relationships yeah. are around that. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's why your book, as I was saying before we were recording, if I had had this book earlier, I think it would have helped me identify the parts of myself I should 
look at more closely to kind of get to the other side. Like I now, I'm so lovely if you. Oh yeah, I'm kind. I'm 38, and I was reading your book, thinking, oh, I think I'm there. Like I think I'm where you end up in the book now. Like I like, oh my gosh, I I saw myself. Why did I? flirt with other people in front of a lovely boyfriend like that was never about them that was about my you know mm. endless need for attention yes. or all the things you pinpoint um but far out I wish I'd had this as a a guide do you know what that's so lovely of you to say thank you um it's still like it's still the lifelong lesson for me though I'm still it's so weird. Sometimes when I read back the memoir, when I have to do a kind of readings of it, I am really jealous of the woman in the final, <laughs> in the final chapters because I just was in such a, a moment of clarity in my life and it all just felt so simple suddenly. My sense of self for so long had been so attached to the love and attention of men and I recognized that and realized that something quite drastic had to change and it did but I was just I don't know it's so it's so earnest actually my book really at the end of it which is I think why so many English people were so uncomfortable with it <laughs> I'm really hoping Americans, Americans will, will, love it. will like about we'll, it we'll like it is it. very sincere at the end and to a point that's uh even cringes me out sometimes and I think I felt very, I did feel like I had, I had like come upon this truth um, through, through my experiences and through the therapy I was doing. And, and I just felt so powerful when I was writing it, which is why I think I could write it and not be worried about it. Something so personal going out into the world in that I just felt so like enlightened in that moment of my life. And it's got muddy again. I've got to be honest, since then it has got muddy again. And I'm sure that's like the cycles of, of learning. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I was drawn to the part with Eleanor, your therapist, very much. And not just because she was Australian. Oh, has yeah, yeah, of course. Um, oh God, I've just remembered, I think I did an Australian accent in the audiobook. Did I? I'm just trying to remember, I think, or maybe we made a call not to in the end. My Australian accent is like... So Dame Edna Everidge. <laughs> I, I won't make so. you do it now. It'd be horrible. <laughs> it will be horrible for all involved. Um, yes, yeah, she was. Uh, she was Australian, and that's so. She was like quite a. She was a very loud, expressive woman, which I now understand to be quite unusual in, in Freudian therapy. Um, that she wasn't. She she very she very much kind of would very loudly give her opinions to me on things. That's she great. That's why great. I want a therapist, not just to sit there and try, you know, that, that um, what is it? Oh, we will talk therapy. Yeah. Often they don't say much or give you feedback. I'm yeah. Like, I want feedback. Yeah. She's, she, she was very, very specific with her feedback and she was very hard on me actually. And it's, it's interesting because she's, um, uh, but it's I, I, her, her being Australian because she was always sort of shouting at me. Her being Australian is so a part of that experience for me. And I, am I, I triggering you again? The no, not time at all. Today. Because you're just this like <laughs> ethereal, floating um, Australian fairy. Um, and uh, she was very, she was quite truculent, and she, she, 
it's weird. I just, I, she told me when it all ended, she said, I, uh, you, you, I'll be with you forever now. She said, I'll, you'll hear me with you all the time and you'll know what, which kind of now sounds maybe weirdly messianic and omnipresent. Um, but cause I was very fearful and it was got a lot of conversations we had when we wrapped up is I was like, I don't want you to leave me. <laughs> Basically I don't, I need, I need your opinion. I need, I need you there with me. And she, and she said, you know, the whole point of therapy is all that talking you carry with you. So I do, I do hear her all the time. You know, she is like weirdly with me. Why did she liken you to Trump? (laughs) (laughs) Um, She, yeah, she was really, really hard on me. And that one, that was a particularly horrible session. Well, what was I talking to her about? I was talking to her about, there were, I got into a number of bad habits in my 20s that were all sort of tied up in one thing, which was having incredibly low self-esteem, not really being able to sit in my body and myself and who I was with a sense of integrity and pride without shame uh, and face the reality of life. I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I had all these different kind of coping mechanisms, one of which was very dysfunctional relationship uh, with sex mainly, um, an unhealthy, quite extreme relationship with um, alcohol. And um, there are a number of other, lots of little things, one of which was gossip. And I, it was all, they were all sort of tied up together as well. One always sort of led to the other. Um, and they were always revived. Those habits were always revived in my life when uh, I was feeling kind of detached from myself. So I was talking to her about how I'd been, how I wanted to stop gossiping. So I just realised that I would go from kind of social situation to social situation, absorbing and administering gossip like a kind of black, market trader and I realized that and I think everyone's had a period of like this in their life where I would get into a conversation it would just be a matter of time before we started talking about someone that we knew and she said to me why do you think that you do that and I said I don't know I think it's probably to endear myself to people to get to create a kind of intimacy with people without having to really do any work and she said, yes, that's right. And I said, I also think it's probably to make myself feel big and powerful. Um, and she said, that's exactly it. She said, you, you're putting others down to raise yourself up. And I said, yes. And she said, do you know who else who does that? I said, who? And she said, Donald Trump. And I do remember saying, Eleanor, I really enjoy that, that you feel you can be very honest with me. I have to say, I think even oh, that's a little bit unfair. <laughs> that's quite a leap. And then she said to me, fine, maybe a Nigel Farage then. But she did have a point. And interestingly, lots of my friends went to go see her as well, which I've heard is completely (laughs) not the done thing. So they went for themselves. Yes, it all began with a very close friend of mine told, sort of frog-marched me in there and said, you you can't do this on your own anymore. And she was completely right. And it was the exact right moment for me. And then I was having such a positive, difficult, challenging experience, but positive experience with her. I recommended her to a couple of other friends. And what's been very interesting is one of my friends who goes to see her talks about this just delightful, charming, soft, soft, maternal, taciturn woman and I, I tell her about our exchanges and she just doesn't recognise that woman. 
And I really wanted to dig into it because I really, I was like, how, I, I don't understand why she felt you need that sort of care. And she, you know, I cry every session that ended with me in floods and floods of tears. It was really, um, I had to take responsibility for everything in a way that was that was unbearable sometimes. And what I think is interesting is that my friend who ha- who she's much softer with had a completely absent mother. She had a mother who was uh, very troubled and alcoholic and who basically just wasn't there as a parent for her and gave no parental care. I had a mother who was too much of a mother. God love her. This is like when you know that you in the words of Larkin, will fuck up whatever you do. In my first session with Anna, she basically said to me, you've been overloved <laughs> by your parents. And my mum gave, I felt very smothered with love by my parents. What I, she obviously identified it in, identified in me, the parent I needed. And she obviously identified in my friend, the parent she needed. Because I needed someone to say, enough, no, take responsibility, you're not doing this anymore. And she needed someone to say, I'm here, it's okay. Is, but isn't that isn't interesting? That interesting. You needed there to be consequences. Exactly. For your bad behaviour. Exactly. Or, and she needed that place. Yeah. I think for me, it served me for that very particular moment in my life. And I did think about whether there was a world in which I could go back to uh, the therapist that I write about in the book. But I do see the appeal. I do, because you don't need to start again. You tell those stories Ugh. again. But it's like dating, isn't I know, it? Oh, I my know. God, when you have to really tell the family history, <laughs> I know, I the know. rest, I just think I cannot be doing this. But that's also why I think when you mention in the book, if you have romance, you know, if you have, well, I don't think I'd ever have romance fatigue, but if you have dating, relationship, even fatigue, to stop or to have the abstinence and to go, what is it I want from this now? What is it I've been doing? So I had, after I wrote the book, I was kind of on the beginning of this journey when I wrote that final um, chapter, I took... So it was somewhere between a year and 18 months completely out of all love and carnal activity I just removed myself from. And, like, even to the point of all the people who I used to text, you know what I mean, like the back burner, that all went, flirting, everything, it all stopped. And I had to, I had to like, in that time I did, like, a lot of making amends with men that I'd been involved with it was like it was like a very definite process that I went through and it was it was a really really amazing thing to do it was a really one of the most empowering things I've ever done and the reason why I think it's so radical is not only is it really important to know that you can exist without the love of a romantic partner not only is that such a like simple thing to get your like it's such a simple concept but actually living it properly is you realize what a radical thing that is for a woman but also as I've moved into my 30s I've realized that in so many ways particularly as we know in in career in a career space but particularly in love as well there is such a myth of scarcity for women that paralyzes us with fear and makes us make really really bad decisions in love and makes us 
choose partners that are not worthy of our love and makes us completely disregard our deep bodily instincts, which is basically this idea of their your um, stock in love has a limited shelf life when it's high and then it will start plummeting. And there are only so many men out there for you. And uh, you're lucky if you get one. If, you, if you're loved by someone decent, you've won the lottery. That's not something that you deserve. That's something that you chance upon and you and yeah is a stroke of luck so I think that that kind of myth is so so detrimental and I think it, there's something so fucking punk about particularly a woman in your 30s particularly as a woman I want to know that I'd like to have children of going no I don't want to engage in that for a while and there's no rush and I'm not feeling any fear of scarcity I know that it's ahead of me and it's something that I deserve and will find so good Dolly <laughs> I needed that so badly it makes me um it both makes me so upset but also comforts me that someone is mad clearly magical and brilliant as you that that's something that you need to be reminded of all the time mm. it's so powerful that what you've just pinpointed so eloquently that idea that we're expiring. Yeah, yeah. And the men only get better mm. and all their options open up again after their divorce, whereas the women, they're, they're plummeting. Yeah. I'm, I'm um, writing a novel at the moment that's basically about that, where basically you do have a moment in your 30s, I think, as a single woman, particularly on online dating, where you're like, oh, the boys are in charge. The boys are the ones in charge here. And it's so horrible. And there has to be another way. And there is definitely, there is definitely another way. Um, but I think that mythology, that scaremongering that you talk about is particularly potent in New York in a way that I think is very, is a noise that's very difficult to ignore. And I remember years ago watching Breakfast News and there was a woman on Breakfast News who was a Manhattan girl who had realised that she somehow found this stat that said that for every single for every single man there were five single women in in Manhattan so she developed this was pre-dating apps this was years ago she developed this like completely insane like buzzing system like monitoring system that would like set off an alarm and let you know when you were in throwing distance of the nearest single man and I remember even as a young woman like I was like a teenager watching this I remember being like I never ever want to move through the world and exist in a realm where that kind of panic is a part of my daily life there's so many like actual fucking things we have to worry about. about exactly yeah it's a really clever way of just keeping us distracted and thinking about boys all the time well that's why I think this whole moment we're in is so powerful actually like to say enough mm. enough but it takes a lot of unpacking and I'm shedding all those ideas about mm. ugh, just the traditional things it's deep it's deprogramming basically yeah. from a from a cult that's what we're all most kind of sentient women i know <laughs> are in a process of 
of, of, of decolting themselves, basically. And it happens young. Like another um, kind of framework in the book I love so much is, you know, it's everything I know about love, but you do it, everything I know about love or you knew about love when you were... Was it 16 or a teenager? Yeah, teenager, yeah. And then it kind of goes up um, certain years. But one of them, which I laughed at, it's a good idea to get married a bit later in life after you've lived a bit, say, 27. I know. Mine was 26. Was I remember it? my girlfriends and I would be like, when we're 26, we'll do this and this is what it'll all look like. It's so weird, isn't it? I was re-watching, I was re-watching my best friend's wedding. And, you know, you know, they have that thing where it's like, oh, when we're old, if we don't have a partner, promise, like, well, let's get married. The age was 27. I know. I've already out expired all of my <laughs> options of, you know, when you're so hopeful, you know, when you're 24, or 25 and like, well, when we're 30 yeah. and we're not. Anyway, it's so silly. It's so weird. I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll ever really be able to get this is such a basic thing to say. I don't think I'll ever really be able to get my head around ageing. I don't think I'll... Re- like, the concept of age and maturity and how it warps as you get older, it's weird. Like, I, I'm d- d- kind of out in the world of dating at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, it just sounds very threatening. <laughs> I'm out at large. <laughs> Dolly is back. She was abstinent for 18 months. Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, And I was referred to by a 26-year-old boy as um, an older woman. And it was the first time someone had called me that. And uh, it really really scrambled my head a bit. I don't know why. I started thinking a lot about age after that. And then I looked up how old... And Bancroft, and Bancroft was when she played Mrs. Robinson, and the answer is 35. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about how weird it is that there was a period of my life that felt really not that long ago where a 26-year-old man was an older man. Hmm. And a 26-year-old to me was someone who had, you know, total... really had a, a solid sense of selfhood and probably had an old-fashioned cocktail when they got in every night and listened to a Miles Davis record and probably always carried a briefcase. And now a person of that age looks to me as someone who is infinitely wise and, you know, probably quite glamorous because I have a coffee machine and... (laughs) And I just feel like a little girl still, just like pretending to be an adult every day. And I just, I just don't think I'll ever really get my head around that. And I think basically the answer is there is no arrival point in your life of maturity. I don't think you ever really feel like you're an adult. Like I think that I'll look back and find it insane that at 31, I was even considering that I was that I was an adult. Because your book is also so much about female friendship 
And I'm just going to find a quote here because it's so lovely. Um, oh, nearly everything I know about love I've learned from my long-term friendships with women. And I identify with this so much too that I hadn't realised that I should, I should look at romantic relationships in the same way similar ways that I do with female friendships mm. and that if you took the sex out of those mm. romantic relationships or the attraction or that whole game, would you still be interested in them as a person? Mm. Would you still care about their opinions? Would you really care and would they really care about you without that dynamic, which I think for me has probably been why things die off after that three-month mark or five-month mark because actually they're not that interesting. And instead of waiting to work out if they're interesting or not before you get, like, involved sleeping with them, I just thought, oh, Dolly again, she put it into such a simple sentence that I hadn't realised I'd made that mistake over and over again. And I'm exactly the same as you, girl. And, you know, the the moment I think I really realised that was when I was like, oh, I really have no interest in being friends with any of my exes at all. And it's because when you take out the number one thing that bonded us, which is we were in a relationship, we had a sexual relationship, we had a romantic relationship, we had an intimate relationship when you take that out that's the only thing we really have in common and it just feels like particularly when I look at my friends who have children and I'm really seeing and I'm sure you have the same with your friends close up like how incredibly difficult that is for two people for a relationship to survive that in any sort of happy content healthy way This fundamental thing that I feel like women just completely, sorry, not women, some women, (laughs) um, completely discount because there's so much onus on the passion and romance and being adored in the love stories that we have been fed. You miss out this fundamental thing often of like, do I really get on with them? Is this like someone I really want to hang out with? Is this, this is this like the person who I get the same excitement about when I walk to the pub as I do when I go see my best girlfriend? I just feel like I'm brimming with stuff to say and I can't wait to hear about their day. For some reason, it's like such a logical, obvious thing that we miss out. And I said recently to my friends who are married with, I'm very, very happy with uh, a toddler and a baby on the way. They live in the countryside. And I was talking about, just complaining about my (laughs) dating life. And um, I was like, do you know what? I've had a new new strategy. I was like, I'm going to get all of my stimulation just from my friends. I'm going to talk about books with my friends. I'm going to get drunk and have a raucous time with my friends. I'm going to get emotional nourishment from my friends. I'm going to travel with my friends. And then what I really want from the person I have a family with is I want them to be like incredibly reliable, very good with assembling furniture around the house um, and have, you know, incredibly enormous biceps and actually fuck 
fuck this. Men have been doing this with their trophy wives forever. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to completely discount any sort of intellectual stimulation or spiritual connection. Get that from my girlfriends. I'm just going to use my husband <laughs> in the same way that men historically have used their trophy wives. And for me, I was like, makes sense. That's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go out and just find any old hottie who'll have me. And my friend Jack said, do you know what told us? There's something I've really learned from having a family is that there are a lot of very long, dark nights (laughs) that feel like they're going to go on forever. And he said, and you just have to have a really good mate with you. And I just think it's such a good piece of advice. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's annoying, isn't it? Because I think my theory sounds like it could work. (laughs) I was thinking about that recently. My best friend and I were both thinking we would have a kid, you know, we'd each plan it to have one about the same time. Yeah. And then we actually thought this would be a great premise for a TV show, like two friends who are straight and have dated and they just think, you know what, we'll this is going to be easier. We're all for communal living, helping. We'll both try at the same time, live together and raise the kids. And then each of us can go off on our dates and see people or whatever. I don't think it has a... I think that does make sense. (laughs) It does make sense. I know it could still be on the cards. But also, let's be honest, like, this is why sisterhood is so much more than sloganism Sisterhood is essential for survival. When you think about how communities have worked historically, and arguably some people say communities still work, it's female it's, networks. Yeah, it's female networks and women like keeping everything afloat, raising children, keeping a house in, um, afloat, you know, keeping families happy, nurturing, providing, often doing that while earning good money and having their career as well. Like, I think that that makes total sense as a concept. Basically, that's what women were doing for years, you know, raising families and running homes with each other. Okay, so one thing I do want to not endish on, which might be a strange one, is because I know you thanked Marion Keys in the acknowledgements. And one of my favourite... Um, Love Stories episodes was the one with her. I feel like that one went viral. So Mm. many of them must have. But in Australia, that was going wildfire when I was there. Really? Yeah. That makes me so happy because I just love that woman so much. And I feel like she's emotionally and in various parts of her life had such experiences and been to hell and back in, in certain ways. And I think it's just such a generous and loving and gracious thing to collect what you've learned and impart them in such an eloquent, beautiful way. And some of the things, there's one thing in particular that she said in that podcast that I think about on a daily basis where she said, she was talking about the very kind of dramatic relationships of her 20s when she was in the kind of depths of alcoholism and how they were all very kind of um, fiery and that horrible word that we use when it basically means abusive um and you know uh, stressful relationships and I said why do you think you constantly sort them out and she said I was generating fake emotions to distract me from the pain of being me and I just think about it all the time of the measures that we go to to avoid sitting with the the fundamental internal truth of our own pain and 
discomfort that sometimes just feels it would be too much to look inward at, at it. So it's almost like we dump all our anxieties about it in, in these other completely unnecessary dynamics. Well, don't you ever find there's a lull and then you think, what will fill, what will, what will give me a peak of something again? Mm. And often it's a person or destructive behaviour and you can feel it going on, can't you? It's weird. I was talking to a friend about this literally last night at dinner and she was talking about... Do you know what? We were actually talking about social media. <laughs> we were having a bit of a do-me chat about social media and we were both being very honest with each other about how I I think I sometimes think I've got control over it and then I realise that it's... I think fundamentally it's having a very damaging and detrimental effect on me. And I know it's not the same with everyone. Um, and I can be, I can have boundaries with it, which I have got much better at. But really, I know what the answer is. I know what the answer is. And it, it, at some point, I just need to come off it completely. And we were talking about that feeling, that tummy feeling you were saying. Because I remember having this feeling right before I went into therapy of like, knowing that something is... You are, something is going to come to an end at some point or it's going to implode in some way and knowing that you can't, for whatever reason, turn off the junction right now. So you have to just keep on that freeway even though you'll know you're still hurtling in the wrong direction. And I, I would argue that that's the first step of just that cognizance, I think, is the first step of that discomfort of, oh, look, I'm how interesting. I'm literally standing right next to myself, watching myself do something that I know is a completely terrible idea that has, you know, a bad effect on me. But I have I'm at the moment powerless to do anything but just watch myself do it. Yes, I've been there a lot. Yeah. And also just wondering how to redirect yeah. Or maybe, yeah, just, I'm obviously going to go email this therapist directly after our conversation <laughs> or find a new one. Um, from your conversations on the podcast and after writing the book, and I know there's a gap between having finished the book and being that woman yeah, and the woman you are now and yeah. the woman you'll be when the book comes out in America. Mm. But in, are there kind of three things like that about love or about life that kind of help you every day or just give you a boost that maybe you hadn't known about when you had finished the book? This is a really trite one, but I think so much of, so much of the kind of, psychological difficulties of my 20s really were just a manifestation of someone who found the reality of life just too much to bear and someone who had grown up in a house of a lot of love and molly coddling and kind of had been told that there is a way that you can avoid the realities of life if if they make you feel uncomfortable um and actually it's so funny, I was listening to an interview with Martin Amos and he said, uh, when, as a writer, when you're writing, it's where the unconscious asserts itself. And I, for ages after I wrote the book, couldn't really work out what the book was about. And I remember giving it to a friend and she said to me, it's about a girl who just can't face 
reality. She can't face the realities of life. And I think that's that's very true. And actually, there was this whole other section of the book which we ended up taking out <laughs> because it made me seem so incredibly unlikable, <laughs> which is like a series of vignettes where that were called Vivid Fantasies I Regularly Have. And it would just be a page of me describing, you know, I'm sitting at home about to write an article when my phone rings and it is the personal assistant of Christian Louboutin um, to tell me that Mr. Louboutin has been, Monsieur Louboutin has been admiring my sort of classic Hollywood timeless beauty from afar and <laughs> for, for many, many years. And um, my sense of style is so um, inspiring to him that he would like to name a shoe after me. Well, there's one where uh, Mick Jagger is performing uh, at the Roundhouse and he said, he says in the mic that, you know, he hears there's a little lady in the audience with a, with a very big voice, gets me up there, icing the vocals of Gimme Shelter. He says he just only wishes that I'd been alive for the original recording. Anyway, I did about five of these. Some people found them funny. My editor found them completely obnoxious. And it was something that she... But I was like, but surely this is what everyone does. Like when you can't deal with, with having six pounds in your bank account or your grandfather being terminally ill or you know, a terrible meeting with your boss. Isn't this what everyone does? Don't you just sit on the bus or stand in the shower and go to another place? And she was like, no. <laughs> so I think it's like a survival technique of some people, like a coping mechanism of some people and not so much for other people. And I've realised now, like, basically being okay with the discomfort of life. And I think my generation particularly are very bad for this. Just knowing that life has cycles Again, I know this sounds trite. Life has cycles that are going to be really challenging. And that doesn't mean that you're failing or that things are going wrong or the plan isn't on schedule. It's a part of life. And it's so, there's so much buried treasure in those experiences if you mind them properly. So that's really the lesson I've learned in the last couple of years. And that's the one that I'm just trying to put into practice every single day. There's so much treasure here, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go find some of my own this afternoon. I don't know what. I wish we could exactly. just go drink cocktails for 10 day. hours now. <laughs> we do. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. What a treat. Thank you. As you can hear, there is so much to pull out of Dolly's book and our conversation. I think the big takeaway for me was how good it is to have a break from dating if that's, you know, where you are in life, just to almost reprogram yourself. It's always a struggle for me, so hopefully this book can help and also this conversation. Let us know what you think at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.